0: let me urge you to turn in the scriptures to second peter one it's what we're going to be studying this morning it's only about once or twice a year that i give a, a a little apology like this but i have done everything i can to trim down this message to make it as brief as possible and uh i'm just telling you i've done my best okay I promise I am not going to give you anything that's fluff. It's going to be all substance. Uh, (laughs) Good. I'm glad there are cheers. It's just, just buckle your seatbelts, all right? Over the past several weeks, our congregation has been reading and understanding and applying Peter's second letter. It contains the last existing words that we have of Peter, Jesus' lead disciple and apostle. He probably penned this letter in the final year of his life. Interestingly, there's strong historical evidence from at least 10 different extant documents existing in history documents. There's strong historical evidence to demonstrate that Peter was martyred for his faith. To go further, the evidence suggests that it's very probable he died by crucifixion in Rome during the reign of Nero between 64 and 67 AD it's very likely that he's writing this letter around 65 66 AD within the year that he dies when Peter wrote this letter he knew that his death was imminent he says in chapter 1 verse 14 that Jesus had made it clear to him Peter repeatedly says that his purpose in writing this letter is to give Christians reminders to remind believers of the eternally important life-shaping truths that they already know, but they need to be constantly reminded of. Those reminders include, first, the end of chapter 1, the Bible isn't fiction. Peter says, when we told you about Jesus' return to reign on earth, we weren't communicating fiction. We weren't communicating myths. We were eyewitnesses that it's going to happen. And there are repeated promises throughout the scripture that make it even more certain. Second, reminder all of chapter two beware bogus preachers. Peter gave severe warnings, just like Jesus did as well, that there are going to be professing Christians who subtly contradict the Bible. They deny that Jesus is the only way to God, they promote lifestyles of immorality, ignore Jesus' sexual ethics. And they promote lifestyles of greed. We know Jesus taught contentment and He lived without a home. But Christians, God promises you your best life now. As one rap artist put it, if you're living your best life now, you're headed to hell. I say that soberly. We are not living for our best life now. Reminder number three. Jesus is still coming. This is chapter three. Jesus is still coming. Even though it's been a long time, God has reasons for delay. We looked at that two weeks ago. Now we wrap up the letter with the uh, bookends. Chapter 3, verses 15 to 18, and then we're going to go back to chapter 1 that Jared read earlier in the service. The bookends of the letter are the fourth reminder. The fourth, and I would say, climactic reminder. I want to read the final verses of... Second Peter, we're going to pick up right where we left off in verse 15, and then we're going to return to chapter 1. These are the very last words that Peter wrote. Count the patience, or we might say the delay, the long delay, of our Lord as salvation. That is, he's giving people opportunities to be saved. Just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other Scriptures. Notice that Peter believes that Paul's writings are of the same authority as the other Scriptures, the Old Testament. He says, verse 17, You, therefore, beloved... Knowing this beforehand, knowing all my warnings about the false teachers and what they do to twist the Scriptures, to minimize the return of Jesus and how life-shaping it should be. Knowing all this beforehand, he says, take care that you're not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him, to Jesus Christ, be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. With that doxology, to Jesus be the glory forever, it indicates that Jesus' lead disciple believed that the man he followed for three years was none other than God, worthy of worship forever. So the very last words he writes to the Christians are these. Grow in grace Now, before we jump back to chapter one, let's just think of it. Grow in grace. Grace is a free gift. It would be a bit like saying, grow in getting more Christmas presents. How do you grow in getting more Christmas gifts? Maybe get more grandparents? (laughs) Get more friends? (laughs) Grow in grace, right? I think we misunderstand it when we think that we're actually growing in getting God to give us grace. That's not what Peter means. Grace is an undeserved gift. You can't do something to deserve something that's undeserved, right? Trying to point out the logical problem of that. Instead, grow in grace means something like this Christian, you've been saved by grace, you've been given new life by grace. Now grow. Grow in understanding the grace God's given you. Grow in praising God for his grace. Grow in living out that new life that you've been given by grace. Understand God's grace and grow. Now let's go back to chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. And you'll see that the counsel that Peter closes the letter with is the same counsel essentially that he opens the letter with, only he does the opening in more detail. 2 Peter 1 1. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Do you notice there again? Peter's conviction that Jesus is God. He's our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of our Lord Jesus. That's really interesting. So he understands something of the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity. There's God the Father and God the Son. Three, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through a relationship with God through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which power he has also granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through those promises you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that's in the world because of sinful desire. Now in saying that, we become promises of the divine nature. Peter, of course, is not suggesting that we become God. He's saying that we come to share in the character qualities that that are God's, like integrity and purity and love. Notice also Peter's diagnosis of the fundamental problem of the world of non-Christians. There is a whole bunch of corruption in the world He says at the end of verse 4, because of twisted desire, we naturally desire things. This is the problem of the world. It's the problem of natural humanity. We have twisted desires. We naturally desire things that God hates. Or we desire good things that God has created for our enjoyment, but with inverted priorities. For example... We love the praise of other people. Well, the encouragement of a friend and the love of a friend and the support of a friend is a wonderful thing. But if you love the praise of other people more than you love the praise of God, you have twisted desires. And it's those twisted desires that are leading our whole world to corrupt, to be disordered. That's Peter's diagnosis. He says, for this very reason, or because God has given everything we need to escape this corrupt, disordered world and to live in a way that pleases him. Because of this, look at this, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, Christians who grow show that their relationship with Jesus is making an actual difference, that their relationship with Jesus is producing fruit, that it's genuine, it's the real thing. But verse 9, whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten he was cleansed from his former sins. So professing Christians, on the other hand, who aren't growing, he says it's like they're myopic. They're essentially blind. They're willfully overlooking the big picture. Who Jesus is, what he came to do, what difference he can make in their lives, what difference he's going to make in the world. And Peter's basically saying, Do you realize that if you're a Christian who's not growing, there's a major inconsistency? He's not here making a determination that you've like lost your salvation or something, but you are bringing your relationship with God into question if you're not growing. We'll talk about that in just a little bit. Verse 10, Therefore, brothers, Be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure, to demonstrate that you truly are chosen, called by God. For if you practice these qualities, you'll never fall, fall away from the faith. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Wow. Powerful. The final reminder that Peter gives is never stop growing. Peter says, Christians, let me remind you, never ever stop growing in your relationship with God. He's focused on the subject of Christian change, what we sometimes call sanctification or growth in personal holiness or personal consecration, devotion to God. We never stop growing. We never stop changing. And in the rest of the message, I just want to delve into these first 11 verses and explain and apply a little bit more of what Peter explains here. He explains in the first four verses how we've changed. In verses 5, 6, and 7, what change looks like. And then in verses 8 through 11, why change is so important. So we're going to look at how we've changed, what change looks like, and why change is so crucially important. That's where Peter goes in these first 11 verses. First, here's how people change. According to Peter, every human enters the world needing to change because our hearts are not submitted to God, but instead corrupted with self-centered desires. I think I need to say that again. Every human comes into this world needing to change, because something is fundamentally wrong with our hearts. We are corrupted with self-centered desire. And the way this change comes about, the only way this change comes about, according to Peter, is through a relationship, a personal relationship with God. According to these first verses, this change comes about from God, through God, and for God. We actually are given faith. We, His his word is obtain or receive faith as a gift from God. And then we are credited as sinners. We are credited with the righteousness of Jesus. His righteousness gets applied to us. You see that in verse 1. The relationship with God, the reconciled personal relationship with God comes through the righteousness of God. That is our Savior Jesus. We are actually credited with Jesus' bank account of righteousness. Everyone who trusts him is saved by that grace, by that crediting of his righteousness to our account. Wow. And then Peter teaches, verses 3 and 4, that our relationship with God is for God. It's actually to produce God-like character in us so that we would forever complement God as those who have been made in his image, and saved and remade in his image. Hmm. So how do people change? How do people change? I just say it very simply like this. By personally understanding and personally trusting God's promises. Change begins when you understand the promises of the good news, and you believe them and they actually come to change your life so that you say not only i know that jesus is the one long ago promised to adam and eve that he was going to crush the serpent's head and rid the earth and all of creation of the curse you not only understand that jesus is the long-awaited offspring of abraham who's going to bring blessing restore blessing to all nations you not only understand that he's the king from David's line. These are very great and precious promises. You understand them. That, that Jesus is the, the Davidic king who's going to come and reign as king of kings on earth forever over, over every government on earth. You not only understand that he is the Lord's servant who would be crucified for his people's sin and then rise again and see the triumph of his suffering. These are all precious promises throughout the scripture. You not only understand who Jesus is, but you say, Jesus, be my savior, be my Lord, my shepherd, my king. You personally understand it. You personally embrace it for yourself. You trust Jesus on whom God's promises center. So how does change happen? According to Peter, it happens through a relationship with God And that relationship starts with God. God actually affects the possibility for you to have a relationship with him through giving his son for you and crediting his son's righteousness to you when you trust him. And it is to shape you into the image of God. God does it all. Salvation is of the Lord. We don't get credit for it. Have you personally understood who Jesus is and trusted in Jesus? Have you called out to the Lord Jesus, save me, cleanse me, forgive me, rule me, shepherd me. I want you to deliver me from my self-centered desires, my twisted desires, and I want to follow you. I'm made to love you supremely. Change me. Have you called out to the Lord to save you? If you have not, I urge you to do it right now. Where you're seated, call out to the Lord. Second, here's what change looks like. Here's what the change looks like. Christian change is always from self-centered rebellion to God-like character. This change is both definitive and continual. It's a little bit like marriage. There is an at the altar moment where you make vows. I will love you exclusively with all I am and have until death parts us. But then, over 10 and 20 and 30 and 40 years, if the Lord allows, you keep living out that covenant commitment that you made. It's definitive, there is a starting point for what it's worth, when it comes to following Jesus. We don't always understand where that starting point was. Many people say, there's a space of two or three months where I was every day calling out to Jesus to save me. I don't know exactly when it happened, but I know it was somewhere in that range. But there is a definitive turning to the Lord, and then there is this ongoing life developing godlike like character. Right? Peter says it very directly in verse 5. He says, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. Going back to that illustration of marriage, it's like saying, if you promised that you would love your spouse, then keep following through. Be diligent to love your spouse. He says, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. And beginning with that word virtue, he describes growth in Christian character with seven terms. All right? I'm going to work through these very quickly. We've got eight terms. The first one is faith, and that's really the foundation. Faith is a personal conviction that leads to life commitment. Becoming a Christian involves faith in Jesus. You need to be convinced of what the Bible says about him, and you must commit your life to him. Like I just said, call on him to be your Lord and Savior. Add to your faith virtue. Virtue. This is an umbrella term, sometimes translated with the word moral excellence. I like the way Pete Hesketh in his new book, The Battle for the American Mind, puts it. He calls it rightly ordered affections. Rightly ordered affections. You think of it like a child who loves Skittles and hates salmon. Do not put salmon in front of that child. They want Skittles. But over time, that little human can grow to be a person who can't imagine who would like Skittles. And would sit down at a restaurant and pay 32 bucks for a bourbon glazed salmon. (laughs) What has happened? Their tastes have changed. Over time, their tastes have changed. Rightly ordered affections, put real simply, is good taste. You grow in virtue. You grow in in craving what God loves. Things like humility and gentleness, purity, contentment. You love those things. And impurity and pride and harshness, you grow to hate. You loathe those things. That's growth in virtue. It's rightly ordered affections. You love what God loves and you loathe what he loathes. Knowledge. Knowledge. True Christians grow in biblical knowledge. Knowledge of God. Knowledge of what difference God makes decisions in life. Someone has defined this as practical knowledge that makes wise daily decisions. There's no chance that people grow as Christians without understanding the Bible for themselves. You must grow in knowledge of God through the scriptures. The next virtue self control. This refers to the ability to control your body and your mind. Christians must continually strive for growth in wise control of things like work and rest, eating and exercising, control of their moods and their knee-jerk reactions, control of how they talk and how they think. Self-control, steadfastness, the fourth virtue. Add to your faith virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness. This refers to perseverance, the ability to patiently endure hardship. Whether we experience trials, persecutions, disappointments, failures, people get back up and they keep putting one foot in front of the next steadfastness the fifth is godliness this refers to living in a way that's wholly devoted to God obeying his commands caring about his word being committed to his people I love God I'm devoted to him to his people Brotherly love. Number six, brotherly affection, as it's put in the ESV. The literal term for this is Philadelphia. So, literally, Peter's saying, supplement your faith with Philadelphia. (laughs) Are all of you here ready to literally obey that command next Sunday? (laughs) I'm kidding. Brotherly love refers to sincere and evidently warm love for your Christian family. It's genuine. It's not fake. It's obvious. It's not hidden. People don't have to guess. There is absolutely no maturity by being a loner. Mature Christians make every effort to grow in brotherly affection. Warm, and sincere commitment to their brothers and sisters in Christ. And then seventh, the crown of Christian character is love. This is warm, self-sacrificial commitment to other people's good. Those whose lives are characterized by love, at a warm, self-sacrificial commitment to others' good, they glorify God and they bless others. Now, I need to park here for just a minute. This is what I was wrestling with about two hours before coming to Sunday school this morning. How much do I go into detail here? And I just want to park here for just a few minutes and talk through what change looks like. When it comes to these virtues, notice that Peter says in verse 5, it's going to take hard work. He says, make every effort. Or some translations have, be diligent. You don't get zapped from heaven with Christian maturity. It comes with diligent effort. According to Peter, it's believers themselves who are primarily responsible for their own spiritual growth. You are not primarily responsible for my spiritual growth. My fellow pastors are not primarily responsible for my spiritual growth. I'm primarily responsible to make every effort to add to my faith these virtues. We as a church can provide opportunities for growth. I as a pastor can try to model what Christian maturity looks like. I can continually encourage your maturity. I can ask you questions when it doesn't look like you're maturing. But I'm not primarily responsible for your Christian growth. You are. Peter puts the primary responsibility for growth on every Christian. Right? I think we also need to notice that when you think through each of these terms, it's clear that maturity comes over time. And this is where in so many counseling sessions over the last several years, I have tried to sketch out for believers what growth looks like. And I often am sketching out like an 18-month expectation I say things like, you're not going to notice much growth over the next month. You're not going to notice much growth after we have three or four counseling sessions together. But it is possible that over 12 or 18 months, you will grow so much that you don't recognize yourself. You might think about it like a diet. In a month, you can lose a few pounds. But in two years, Years? You can lose a hundred. I often will say these counseling sessions are only like a start. I might change the illustration and I might say these initial counseling sessions, you're at a crisis moment. It's just like surgery. All we're doing is surgery, but you have months of rehab to health ahead of you. The surgery is not going to fix you. You're going to have to Make every effort to establish healthy habits of life. And I might do something like this. I might say, just think about your affections, virtue. Tastes are shaped over months and years of healthy eating. Anyone who, like, eats a salad for the first time doesn't like it. But if you have salad after salad after salad after salad... You eventually come to... I'm serious. You come to prefer salad over ice cream. You don't believe me. Can I just say? You've never gone far enough down the road. Seriously, people think of sin like this. They think... I've been dealing with this sin all my life and I'm going to have one monumental night of confession to the Lord and I'm going to get things right and then I'm not going to struggle with it again. You're going to lose taste for that sin after you've confessed it for the 450th time. It takes time for your affections to be rightly ordered. Do you confess and confess and confess and confess? And say, God, I'm growing to hate my sin more and more and more. And I'm praying every day. Lead me not into that temptation again. I hate it. You hate it. I'm growing to hate it. I have to tell a little bit on my my son. I don't think he understands what he said. I'm so thankful to Dale and Bob who are teaching him so regularly and more in their team. On Wednesday night, he comes home saying to Hannah, my repenting's not working. We've never heard him say this before. He's never had this kind of spiritual perception. He says, my repenting's not working. And Hannah's like, what do you mean? And he says, well, I keep repenting, but I keep sinning. That's awesome. And Hannah and I just say, get what you're saying. Been there thousands of times, right? Right? Taste grows over time. It doesn't happen immediately. You think about knowledge. We just talked about virtue and taste growing over time. Think about knowledge. Boy, you're going to make a lot of change if you sit down and this month you read four books of the Bible. No, That's like losing two or three pounds in a month. But what if you read the Bible three or four times over the next few years? you won't recognize the person you are. There are times when I am encouraging people to grow in their knowledge of of an area of sin. Maybe it's porn, or maybe it's finances, how to be self-controlled in your finances. Or maybe it's anger, or maybe it's bitterness. And you recommend, like, Here are four resources that you could use. People have thought about this issue deeply, broadly, for centuries, and they struggle to read a chapter. You say, if you're going to grow in knowledge, think about going back to school. This isn't going to get zapped from heaven over one night. You're going to all of a sudden become a mature person who knows how to defeat your bitterness. Grow in knowledge. Make every effort to add to your faith knowledge. Think about self-control. Christian growth includes exercising your muscles of self-control. Right? Some people want to have muscles of self-control, but they can't even discipline themselves to get a wise amount of sleep. Which sleep is crucial to self-control. Now, there are some health conditions that prevent sleep from being something you can easily discipline yourself to get. Think about self-control. You want to look like those people on the covers of muscle magazines. And when you're tired at 11 o'clock at night, you can't say, I'm just going to get sleep and let yourself get the sleep that God made you to get. You think you're actually going to be able to say no to this and no to that and no to this and no to that when you can't even, like, you want to be the bodybuilder and you can't lift five pounds? This is a regimen. Make every effort to discipline yourself in self-control. Or think about brotherly love. So many people want maturity as Christians, but they are unwilling to commit themselves just all out commit themselves to another group of believers? Are you willing to take the responsibility even farther? You've become a church member. Are you ready to take the responsibility on yourself of pursuing two relationships, maybe over the next eight or nine months? Two relationships, two friendships with other Christians with whom you can, over time, be transparent about the most defining struggles of your life. If you don't want brotherly love, there's no chance of Christian maturity. If you don't want other people in your lives, there's no chance that you're going to grow. So I just wrap up this little tangent on pastoral counsel with what change looks like, and I say, is your concept of Christian growth biblical? I wonder if Peter might be helping you realize that you wrongly think that Christian growth comes pretty easy. It's kind of effortless. You just pray and God does it. Or, you wrongly think that Christian growth is other people's responsibility and not your own. Or you think you can pursue Christian maturity on your own. I wonder if Peter is correcting your concept of what Christian growth looks like. And I would just urge you to let the scriptures shape your thinking on this subject. I wonder, maybe for some of you, this list encourages you to set some goals for the next 12 or 18 months for what healthy growth might look like. Bottom line, Peter says, Christians, make every effort to grow in these ways, make every effort to grow. We end with why change is so crucial why change is so crucial peter gives four reasons i have them simply listed up here on the screen in verse 8 growth shows that your relationship with jesus is real according to verse 9 growth shows that your life is consistent with reality you're not walking like you're blind through this dark world According to verse 10, growth demonstrates that God is truly at work in you, that he's really chosen and called you. And according to verse 11, growth in godliness shows that you will most certainly enter the kingdom. This means that Christian growth is an essential part of assurance. Assurance. It's a key term. Christian growth is... Is an essential part of Christian assurance. Do you know that it's possible for you to enter the kingdom but not be certain of it? But not be assured that you will? By contrast, do you know that it's possible to be sure that you're going to enter the kingdom and have a false sense of assurance? What I just described is the difference between security and assurance. You might be secure and not feel like it. That's what it is to ride the Millennium Force at Cedar Point. Or you might feel secure and not be. That's what it was to get on the Titanic you can be secure and not feel it you can feel secure and not be secure peter says that part of your sense of assurance comes from christian growth pastor in north carolina named jd greer has written a really helpful little book on assurance i've got like seven or eight copies up here of the student edition which is very much like the normal edition Any of you who want to read this book can come up here and grab a copy. It's yours to take with you. I'll just hope all of the copies get gone after the service. The book is called Stop Asking Jesus Into Your Heart, How to Know for Sure You're Saved. I cannot recommend everything J.D. Greer does, but this book is outstanding. He explains salvation happens in a moment. And knowing the moment, the exact moment of your conversion is not essential. That's helpful pastoral counsel. He explains that true saving faith has very little to do with intensity of emotion at the beginning. And it has everything to do with duration over time. Solid biblical teaching. He summarizes the whole book's point on page 104. I have it quoted up here. There are three primary bases for assurance. One is a present posture of faith and repentance. Check your pulse. Are you today repenting from sin and trusting Jesus? A present posture of faith and repentance. Second, perseverance in the faith. And third, evidences of eternal life in our heart like love for God and love for others, particularly a committed love for other believers. He says these three combine to give us powerful sense of assurance that we belong to God. He helpfully summarizes what Peter says about why change is so crucial. It's because if you're growing In knowledge and self-control and godliness and brotherly affection, it's strong evidence that your faith is living and not dead. That's Peter's point. Christian growth is crucial to our sense of assurance. So that's the fourth reminder. Peter bookends his letter with, Never stop growing. So I ask, Christian, are you growing? In the words of Peter, are you making every effort to supplement your faith with virtue? Are you growing in understanding God's grace and praising Him for His grace and living out that grace? Or would you say, you know what? I've started coasting. I've become stagnant. Like I said earlier, you're not going to see growth day to day. You should be able to see it year by year. Do you love the Bible more than you did last year? Do you hate your sin more than you did a year ago? Are you more prayerful for the gospel's advance than you were a year or two ago? Are you more excited for Jesus' return than you were a year ago? Christian, are you growing? The bookend reminder from the dying apostle, never stop growing. Let's pray. Father, strengthen us, shape our lives with your word. I pray that this message would give hope to the hopeless this morning. I pray that this message would give instruction to the naive. I pray that this instruction from your word would give encouragement to the weary, strength to the mature, correction to the wayward. God, I pray that even this message would call those who are not followers of Jesus to commit their lives to earth's crucified, risen, and returning king. God, shape us with these words. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.